1 Corinthians chapter 5 It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant? Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my last letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would have to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality, or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. It's a tough passage this morning. Um, this is a passage that those who like to be really legalistic like to take and bash people over the head with it and, and justify their legalism. Um, but it's also a passage that Many just want to discount and disregard and think, well, we're not, I'm not even going to read that one. I'm not even going to let that one speak to me because it's challenging to me too much about my life or about our church. Um, now, today, my prayer is that we'd be able to just take it as it is and that we'd allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us and that we would begin to understand that, hey, this is... Even the judgment that's spoken here, it's actually a message of grace. Because unless we come to the point where we want to repent and turn away from our sin and turn our hearts towards God, then we're never going to get to fully experience the grace that God has for us. Okay, so with that in mind, uh, let's begin. Uh, we're studying what's known as Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth. It's not actually his first letter. He did write an earlier one, uh, but we've lost it. We don't, it hasn't survived the passage of time, and we don't have it anymore. But in this letter, this is how, who he addresses it to. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Right? So this is who it's written to. And wow, there's some, there's some really deep words there. 
And when we begin to understand these words, only then are we ready to understand chapter 5. Regardless of whether the Church of God is in Corinth or whether it's in St. George or Westmar or Begonia or Bonjean or Durham-Bandy, it doesn't matter where it is, the people of God, Christians, need to recognise this about themselves. This is who we are. We are those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. Now, sanctified, that's a big word that we probably don't hear anywhere else other than in church circles. But what it means is, means we have been made holy. It doesn't mean that we were holy when we came to God and God loves us so much because we are so holy and therefore he made us Christians. No, that's not at all what it means. What it means is at one time we were enemies of God. Um, We did evil in God's sight. Our very rejection of God is the worst evil that we could perpetrate. And our actions were deserving of death. We, We were rotten to the core. But here's the graciousness of God. And this is the gospel. Jesus died in our place. We deserve to die, but Jesus died instead of us. He took my sin upon himself when he was nailed to the cross. And so all those sinners who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ are sanctified. They are made holy. We are made holy. That means we are made pure. Every bit of wickedness, every bit of evil inside of us at that point is taken away. Not only are we sanctified, made holy in Christ though, but we are also called to be saints. Now, what's a saint? Now, we've talked about this before, and we, you know, sometimes we think saints are those very special Christians, right? Not, none of us would be saints. It's those very special ones. No, we are all saints. And not only are we saints on our own, we are called to be saints together as God's church, together in this little fellowship, together with the church, universal, all the other churches in town and all the other churches across the state and across the globe. So are there any saints here today? A few hands are going up. Good, good, you're learning. Because I think the first time I said that, there was sort of hardly any hands went up. Using biblical terminology, the saints are God's holy ones. So because of what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross, he has made us saints. Even though you might feel that, hey, I don't think that I act very saintly, God has taken your sins away. And in his eyes, you are holy. That's what saint means. In in the Greek, the word hagios simply means holy ones. But we are still called, so we are holy, but we are called to be holy. We're called to be saints. So let me give you an example. If a student is elected as a school captain, by his status, he is a school, sorry, by his election, his status is he is the school captain, right? But he is also called to be a school captain. He is called to be school captain-like, right? So it means in his behaviour, in his actions, in his demeanour, he must be very much like a picture of what a school captain should be. 
And if he's not, well, he'll probably get demoted. And it's like that with us. Through the grace of God, we are already sanctified. We are already made holy. Therefore, we are called to be the saints, the holy ones that we already are. Now, somebody once said, a saint is someone who makes, sorry, whose life makes it easier to believe in God. Would you agree with that? A saint is someone whose life makes it easier to believe in God. Well, technically it's not true all the time, but it should be, right? How we live either makes Jesus look good or it makes him look very, very bad. How we live will either honour Christ or it will dishonour Christ. I was talking to somebody just the other day, and this isn't a unique conversation at all. I've had similar conversations like this many times. And he said, I I can't see how God can be real if he lets priests do what they do to little kids. Now, of course, we could come up to all sorts of answers for statements like that, but we cannot get around the point that he was making. What was his point? It's when those who claim to be God's children behave badly, it dishonours God. It dishonours God terribly. And particularly so when the behaviour is even worse than what godless society will tolerate. Yeah, and we see that often. You know, people are very fast to say, oh, so-and-so, they call themselves a Christian, but this is what they've done. You know, I've got the most, most godless friends and none of them would ever do something like that, right? We've all, got, we've all heard things similar to that being said. Now, we've got a case like this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 in the Bible reading we just had, incest. It's been reported to Paul that a man in the church is being sexually immoral with a lady who is most likely his stepmother. Word has gotten to Paul that a man has his father's wife. You. And, you know, there's, there's no grey area here. That, that's just simply outrageous. You'd go, ooh, wouldn't you? Yeah. I I go, ooh. Now, the pagan Greek culture that they were in, like this is the culture of Corinth, it was a culture that was thoroughly immoral. Sex outside of marriage was normal for them. Uh, Adultery was common, almost a given. Uh, Homosexual relationships were not at all uncommon. But even the Greeks drew the line at incense. It's like, ooh. Yeah, this is just repulsive. It will not be tolerated. But there it was, present in the church in Corinth. Sexual immorality of a kind so obscene that it wouldn't even be tolerated by the Greeks. And as a church, they were proud. They were puffed up. They were boasting. I don't know, what would you have to boast about? Would it be like, Maybe they're celebrating, look how free we are. We, we, can, we can even do this. Yeah, that's how, how free we are. When there is a great wickedness present in the church, Paul tells us two things. He tells us how we should feel about it. And he tells us what we should do about it. How should we feel? Angry? No, that's not what he said. Sad. We should mourn, mourn as we would at the death of a loved one. 
And what should we do about it? The person who is responsible for the great wickedness should be removed from the fellowship. Whoa. Now that's, that's a big call. And how can that possibly fit with what we've been hearing over the last few weeks where we seem to be and keep hearing, don't judge. We shouldn't be judging. Right? We, we know Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, judge not or else you will be judged. And even in this very letter to, to the Corinthians over the last few weeks, we're being told that a spiritual person is to be judged by no one. Uh, Paul was telling us how the apostles and teachers should be judged by no one. We've been hearing how it's, hey, it's not my place to judge because God is the one who does the judging. Uh, and don't bring judgment before the time. Jesus will do that when he returns. But now he's saying not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil one from among you. So he was telling us, don't judge, don't judge, don't judge. And now he's saying, judge. What's the difference? Why the change in the message? Well, from what I can see, there's two very important differences. Firstly, the command for us not to judge in, that we've been seeing in the previous chapters was a command to individuals or factions within a church, right? So as an individual, I have the duty to be discerning, right? I have to discern what's good and what's evil, what's right and what's wrong, so that I don't put my trust in the wrong thing or the wrong person. But I do not have the right to judge. I do not have the right to pronounce judgment. As an individual, I don't have a right to pronounce your judgment. And as an individual, you don't have the right to pronounce judgment upon me. And the second very important difference is in the earlier references to not to judge, um, they were being told not to judge where the disagreements were over finer points of doctrine or over debatable matters, matters that aren't fully clear in scripture what God is saying on this issue. Matters where faithful people can and do come to very different perspectives to each other, even though they're both trying really hard to be faithful to God's word. And on these matters, the message is, don't judge. Whereas now, we're being told that the Corinthians, as a united church, not individually, but as a united church, should judge this wicked person because they are agreed as a fellowship that his behavior is indisputably outrageous. It was blatant, unrepentant, and there are no gray areas here. It's you. Paul tells them that as a church, they should gather together in the name of the Lord and together as the people of God, um, Christ will be with them in power 
And he says here a rather strange phrase. You are to deliver this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, why would a Christian ever hand someone over to Satan? What on earth is he talking about? Well, to be put out of the church, to be excommunicated, is to be cast out of God's kingdom. Right? So the world is Satan's domain, the church is God's domain, and so for the wicked man to be put out of the church and to be put out of the fellowship with the Christians is for them to hand him over to Satan. And it's done with a purpose, for the destruction of the flesh. Now, does that mean, okay, so we can get a blowtorch and burn away all the skin and the muscle tissue? No. Paul often uses the word flesh to describe that part of us which is unrepentant, sinful man. All right? So in Galatians, he says, uh, the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for they are opposed to each other. And you know this, don't you? Like, I remember the cartoons, you know, you'd have, have Donald Duck and, and like the, the good Donald Duck would pop up on this shoulder and give, say, oh, you've got to go and do this nice thing. And the evil Donald Duck would pop up on this shoulder and go, no, no, don't listen to him. You need to go and do this. You, you, you know the thing? That is the spirit and the flesh, this thing which is arguing inside of us all of the time. And so to hand the evil person over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh is done with the hope and the prayer that that person will be so grieved that they will repent and they'll be saved. It's like sending a misbehaving child to the naughty boy corner. Why do they always have naughty boy corners? Why is there no naughty girl corner? That's what I've always wondered. But you see, we, why do we send a child to the naughty boy corner? Is it because we want to be nasty to them? No, it's not. You see, we don't want them to stay there. We want them to rejoin the group. We don't get any joy in sending them there. They're excluded from the community for a purpose because exclusion from the other kids hurts. And the intent of the naughty boy corner is for them to then be sorry for what they've done and to repent and stop doing the wrong thing and start doing the right thing. So this is a bit like the Christian version of the naughty boy corner. Righto. The Christian church has always taught the need for uncompromising adherence to purity, especially in the areas of sexual ethics. Why is that? Is it because of tradition? Um, is it because there's a certain level of morality that society expects of us and the church has to live up to that, to that level so that, well, so just so that we're not worse than other people in the world? For instance, when my parents first got married, um, they didn't think to take their wedding certificate with them on their honeymoon. And when they arrived at where they were going to have their honeymoon, they wouldn't let them stay in the same room. Because uh, my dad was a fair bit older than mum and none of their ID could show that they were married. So here they are, they turn up for their honeymoon and, and um, the people who own the honeymoon spot reckon they're, they're just there for a dirty weekend. And, and, they, and so here, here dad is on his honeymoon sneaking in in the middle of the night to my mother's room. This is what they tell us anyway. 
Now, that, does that give you some kind of idea of how things have changed in the last 50 years? Things are a little bit different now. How many clients would that honeymoon spot have if, if they insisted on checking everybody's wedding certificate? Now, the question is, should the ethics of the church evolve because of the changing ethics of the community? So 50 years ago, sex outside of marriage was frowned upon, whereas now it's commonplace. Uh, it's ex in fact, it's more than commonplace. It's expected. The world will think you're strange if you wait until you get married before you have sex. But the thing is, when it comes to ethics and morality, our society today is pretty much akin to the pagan Greek culture of Corinth. And for Christians, even in that church in Corinth, it's always been right for us to turn our backs on worldly immorality and to choose to live differently to the world around us. Why? Why do we do that? Well, Paul tells us why. And to get us to understand why, he takes us right back into the Old Testament times and he takes us back to the Passover. So let me set the scene for you. We've got Egypt and the people of God, Israel, are slaves in Egypt. And God sends Moses to Pharaoh with a message. Let my people go. I want to save them from slavery. Let my people go. And for the people of God to be set free from Egypt was eventually going to take death. The Lord said, take a lamb and kill it and paint its blood on your doorposts and on the lintel and I will pass over your house. That's where the name Passover comes from. And you will be saved. And they were told to prepare unleavened bread. Some of your Bibles might say bread without yeast in it. Uh, but they didn't have yeast like what we have yeast today. So Lauren had that yeast, that nice little packet there. Nice little packet, nice clean yeast. They didn't have yeast like that. Their yeast was old mouldy dough. When they needed the dough to make bread, right, so they'd be kneading their bread, they would then take a small piece of that dough and they'd put it away somewhere in their house and it was left to putrefy. At a later date, when they were making bread again, they'd need a bit of yeast. So they'd go and grab a piece of that old putrid dough with bacteria and fungus all over it and through it, and they'd take a small piece of that and they would work it into the dough. And that would be the leaven. And it's particularly the fungus um, that causes the bread to rise. Now, biblically, this process of making bread and, and, and of preparing leaven is used as a metaphor for everything that's rotten in our lives. And it's a pretty good analogy, isn't it? If you think of a bit of old moldy bread and dough that you're just going to get a bit of that ew, yucky stuff and pretend that nobody notices it when you knead it through the whole, whole batch. And God said to the people of Israel, when I set you free from Egypt, Leave all of the leaven behind. Leave everything that's putrid behind and take only what's pure. And that's why 
Uh, from that time on, once a year, Israel would celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And to prepare for this Feast of Unleavened Bread, they had a process where they would go through their homes. They would go into every room. They would look into every nook and cranny, looking for any bit of old leaven that they might have tucked away just in case they needed it to make bread and they'd already used up all of the other old leaven. And every bit of leaven that they would find, every bit of old mouldy dough would be removed from the house and thrown away and it would be a clean start. Now the thing is, they didn't search each, every, each other's houses. They had to search their own house. All right, so you got this, this leaven, this putrid dough is used as a symbol for everything that's rotten in our lives. Sin is dirty and defiling. And like leaven, this putrid dough is used as a symbol for, for this thing which can pervade our whole life. It can work through and grow and permeate everything. If sin is left to grow in my life, I will just get more and more sinful. And that's why the Holy Spirit convicts us. And when we know that we're doing something wrong, and the only right thing to do is say, Lord, I repent. That means I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm going to change my life and live a different way. And likewise, when sin is allowed to exist in the church, it can pervade the whole church and sin will grow. The only remedy is to clean out evil entirely. And so Paul says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. I love that word, lump. Yeah, that's about the only thing you, time you can use the word lump, isn't it? It is a lump of dough. Clean out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are, unleavened. Yeah, the Christian church, Christians... We're not just the same old society, the same old wicked people just, just patched up a bit and maybe shinied up a bit. It's radically new. I mean, we don't just get polished up, we get born again when we become a Christian. The evil that characterises the world has been taken away and we are free of corruption. This is what happens when you give your heart to Jesus. All of your evil is taken away. You are free of corruption. This is what the blood of Jesus does for us. It purifies us. It makes us holy. But our freedom from sin has been bought at a price. An enormous price. It wasn't the blood of a common lamb that brought us freedom. It was the blood of Jesus. Jesus paid for this with his life. Our holiness comes at the price of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. What's my holiness worth? What's your holiness worth? tell you how much God values it. God valued it so much. He gave his only son for you.
It's worth more than we could ever imagine. How do we celebrate it? Do we sing a few songs? Do we pray a few prayers? Do we shout a few alleluias? As far as God's concerned, that's all just show. In Romans chapter 12, it tells us how to celebrate it. It says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Once a year, once a year, the Hebrews had a festival of unleavened bread. One week of every year when they would celebrate their freedom from Egypt. We Christians, we get to celebrate our freedom in Christ every day of every week. How do we celebrate? By cleaning out the old leaven of malice and evil and by celebrating with sincerity and truth. Do I really need to tell you why righteous living is so important? Shouldn't we just know this? It's because Jesus saved us from our old way of life. What was our old way of life? The old way of evil and malice. He saved us from that. And we celebrate being saved by being holy. If as a Christian I live to satisfy the cravings of the flesh, that's just the same as if the people of Israel chose to go back to being slaves in Egypt. Right? God had set them free from being slaves. Would they ever choose to go back and, well, we'll go back and we'll be slaves again. We have been set free from sin. Why would we ever choose to go back to sin again? We celebrate our holiness by being holy. It's, it's not very popular to teach this stuff anymore. But this is what the Bible teaches. Blatant, unrepentant sinners who claim to be Christian shouldn't be allowed to go unchecked in the church. In a previous letter, Paul had written to them, um, which we don't have anymore, he said to them not to associate with sexually immoral people. Um, now, you can imagine how many people we'd associate if, if that was the case. No, if we didn't. But this time he clarifies it. He says, I'm not talking about people of the world, right? You've got to associate with people of the world. Otherwise, you wouldn't get to go to the shops, you wouldn't get to go to the school, you wouldn't get to go to the hospitals. You would, you'd, we'd just have to cut ourselves completely off from community. And some Christians try to do that. That's not God's will. Just look at Jesus. He was well known for spending a lot of his time with some of the most sinful people around. And we should too. How will they ever hear the gospel if we cut ourselves off from those who need to hear it most? So we don't cut ourselves off from the world. But as a church, 
He's saying that we should not associate with anyone who bears the name brother. That means anyone who claims to be a Christian. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard or a swindler. He says, don't even eat with them. As Christians, we are supposed to be a transformed community in every area of life. We should not associate with anyone who bears the name brother if he is guilty. Now, I think it's important to make the point here that he's talking about an ongoing, unrepentant guilt. He's not talking about somebody who has a struggle and they're really trying hard to do the right thing and they, in a moment of weakness, they give way to temptation. He's not talking about that. He's talking about indisputable, blatant, unrepentant sin. And the first one, he makes a bit of a list, and the first one on the list is the one that's it's the easy target, sexual immorality. What do we define as sexual immorality? Uh, the list is enormous, uh, but basically, God's gift of sex is only properly expressed between a man and a woman who are married to each other. Uh, everything else, biblically, falls under the heading of sexual immorality. And it doesn't matter whether you think, well, I love, but I love this person, or whether, well, I'm committed to this person. Um, it still falls under the heading of sexual immorality. Now, a lot of people would end the list there. They'd say, right, well, that's enough. We'll be a church that's free of that. Um, and that's where they end the list. But that's not where the list ends. If anyone who claims to be a Christian is guilty of greed, they shouldn't be allowed to go unchallenged. Uh, Jesus saved us from the sin of greed, always wanting more, more money, more land, more superannuation, a bigger house, a faster car. Uh, when's the last time, though, that somebody got put out of the church for ongoing and unrepentant greed? I, I'm not sure that I've ever heard of it. Or if someone is an idolater. Uh, an idolater is someone who trusts or worships something other than God. Here's an interesting one. A reviler. Does anyone even know what a reviler is? Anyone? To revile is a sin so heinous that if I blatantly and unrepentantly practice this sin... I should be excluded from the church. And yet, what is it? We don't even know. I didn't know. I thought I knew, and then I looked it up, and I, oh, that's not exactly what I thought it was. It's a sin of the tongue. It's someone who is well known for uttering bitter complaint. It's someone who is scornful, and they speak with disdain and no respect. It's someone who speaks abusively with scorn or criticism. And that sort of verbal bitterness has no place in the church. It is a sin which is so heinous 
that if a person refuses to repent of it, and if it characterises this person, if this person is known as being a scornful and bitter person who always speaks with scorn and bitterness, they should be cut off from the fellowship. Then there's the habitual drunk or a swindler, maybe a better word, might be a thief or a robber, that it's someone who clutches for what is not theirs. These are all examples of sins so heinous that if we're characterised by these sins and if we refuse to repent, there comes a point where a church should say with one voice, you've got to go to the naughty boy corner. You're giving Christ a bad name. And until you repent, we have to count you as an unbeliever. You can see why I started by saying, hey, this can be a very judgmental sort of a passage. I reckon the worst thing that we could do right now is to become like the Spanish Inquisition and to go on a witch hunt and to try and root out all of the sinful people in the church, you know, those ones who we decide are sinful. What's the best thing we can do? The best thing is for you and I to each examine ourselves. It is for us to realise the price that Jesus paid to free us from our sins. The price that Jesus paid to free you from your sins. The price that Jesus paid to free me from my sin. And with that knowledge, to begin to live as the saints that Christ has already made us to be. But should it ever come to a time when a church believe it is necessary to cut ties with an unrepentant sinner, we must realise that this is a final step in a process of journeying together in grace. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus told us how to deal with sin in the church. And he outlines this process, and every step of the process, the aim of it is not to punish the person, but to restore them to grace. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Right? So if somebody does something wrong to you, or if you see a sin in somebody else's life, you don't judge them and tell everybody how evil this person is. You just quietly go to them and say, hey, look, you've done this to me, or I've noticed this in your life, and I think God wants to set you free from that sin. And if he listens to you, you have gained a brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge might be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses, right? So if somebody, if you just share this with somebody and they go, yeah, well, what you think doesn't count, then maybe two or three others, take them along with you and say, hey, look, we just want to have this conversation with you because we love you. Um, and we want you to grow in Christ. I think this thing, we, 
really need to address. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And this is the point at which it becomes a church matter and where judgment can be made. And it says, if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. That means treat him as an unbeliever. But every step has the aim of restoring the person to grace. Now, when we talk on passages like this, it can be, and it is, very personal, deeply personal. Some of us may have been caught up in sin in the past, or we may even be continuing in that inner sin now, which we know that, hey, God, God wants me to repent of this. I'm not honouring God by continuing doing what I'm doing. The way, the path that I've chosen for my life here, it's just not right with God. And you'll know that God is telling you, you need to repent. And we need to know that when we repent and turn our back on sin, we are forgiven totally and completely. When we come to the decision, hey, what I've been doing or what I did was wrong, wasn't honouring God, and we confess that sin and ask for forgiveness, we are forgiven. Not a little bit, but completely. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you and we praise you for that very costly price you paid. The pain, the suffering, the humiliation you went through to free us from our sin. Lord, it is no little matter that you set us free from sin. You've made us holy by your blood. But sometimes we've not valued holiness as we should. As Christians and as a church, we've been guilty of sexual immorality, greed, idolatry. We've reviled others and spoken with scorn and disdain. There's been drunkenness and dishonesty and so much more. God, forgive us. Lord, as your word urges us to clear out the old leaven, give us a passion, give us a resolve to make a break from that sin that so easily entangles us and that sin that in some cases has defined us. And Lord, may we become the saints, the holy ones who you saved us to be and call us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.